Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Wednesdays at SSP, a podcast produced by MIT's Security Studies Program here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My name is Chris Burns, and I produce this series. This podcast features recordings of our program's Wednesday seminar series, where prominent voices in political science are invited to give a lecture on their current research. Today's featured guest is Dr. Caitlin Talmadge, an alumni of our program. Dr. Talmadge is Associate Professor of Security Studies in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, where she focuses on defense policy and security issues in Asia, among other topics. In this week's episode, she analyzes the strategic implication of control of Taiwan by China. She argues that control of Taiwan would endow China with a host of geostrategic opportunities that could improve China's ability to contest U.S. command of the Philippine Sea. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you for the warm welcome. It is really, really nice to be back in person uh, at SSP and um, especially presenting this research on the potential military implications of Chinese control of Taiwan, which um, is a project that resonates in certain ways with SSP for me, at least personally. Um, Not only is my co-author someone who I went to grad school with here in SSP, but when Brendan and I were um, working up the very first draft of this paper, and it was really just kind of a 20-page smattering of ideas, the very first place we wanted to take it on the road was to MIT, to the grad students who we knew would give us a lot of ideas for uh, improving it. And I think some of you are in, were, were at that discussion. We're, we're very grateful for the feedback that you gave us then. And we've gone on to um, have the benefit of advice from a number of other SSPers, Barry, um, Owen, Eric, Taylor, um, and even some SSP alums that we didn't go to grad school with, like Eugene, Gold, Sterile Press, and so forth. And so it's just been an interesting project for me personally, kind of at different stages, having the opportunity to connect with other SSPers. And it feels very fitting um, to be here today presenting it. So I'm excited to do that. Um, so uh, unless you have, let me see, oh, we got we have a connection here. Yep. There we go. Unless you've been living under a rock lately, you know that Uh, The Taiwan Strait has kind of been uh, heating up in terms of the media attention and concern about potential conflict uh, with China. There's been lots of attention to uh, what's perceived to be at least an increasing Chinese threat to Taiwan and analysis of the question of whether China will attempt to coerce or invade, take over Taiwan, uh, what the outcome of that sort of military conflict would be, whether the U.S. would intervene, what Taiwan's capabilities are to defend itself and on and on and on. There's been a lot less attention to the question of what might happen after reunification, after China actually gained control of Taiwan, if that were to be the outcome of a military conflict in the Strait, what would that look like and what would the military implications be? And that's what uh, Brendan and I decided to look at in this project. And in my talk today, I would like to walk you through our research, which is still in progress. We are getting, we hope to the final stages, but we're not totally there yet. So we welcome feedback, but we'll try to do three main things, or I'll try to do three main things um, in the talk today. First is to tell you a little bit more about the research question, sharpen the question of what the strategic military implications of Chinese control of Taiwan actually are, tell you a little bit about the background of the project, the argument that we make, and the analytical approach that we take to answering that question. Second, walk you through some of the analysis that we actually do trying to assess the military impact of Chinese control of Taiwan. And in particular, 
discuss the impact of key Chinese military assets that China might be able to base on Taiwan in the event of reunification. For reasons that I will get into as we go along, I'm going to focus today in particular on the impact of China basing submarines on Taiwan and what that would mean for undersea warfare, uh, and also the impact of China potentially deploying underwater uh, acoustic sensors off Taiwan um, and what that would mean for China's ocean surveillance capability. And the, the net impact of this section of the talk is to try to get at the question of what Chinese control of Taiwan might be might mean for U.S. U.S. ability to operate in the Philippine Sea, and I'll come back to that in a moment. And then in the third section of the talk, I want to kind of broaden out from the specific effects of control of Taiwan on you know particular military balances at kind of the tactical and operational levels to the broader question of what does that mean for U.S. pursuit of strategic objectives if it maintains its current grand strategy post reunification. You know what does that mean at the strategic level, and even more broadly. What do our findings about the potential military value of Taiwan mean for grand strategy? And so I'll broaden, I'll broaden out from the military analysis to, to the, the broader topics. So with that, let me just delve in a bit more and, and sharpen the research question for you. So in this project, we're really trying to understand how would Chinese control of Taiwan affect the U.S.-China military balance, and specifically China's ability to conduct key military missions relevant to U.S.-China competition and conflict post-reunification. Now, an assumption here is that there would be the potential for conflict and uh, at least continued uh, competition post-reunification. If that assumption is false, if it's the case that post-reunification, for whatever reason, the U.S. and China are no longer engaged in strategic competition, you can think of various reasons that might happen, or there is no future U.S.-China conflict that could occur post-reunification, then these are military advantages in you know, a war that will never be fought or a competition that will never be had. And so, you know, if that's the case, that's fine. But you know, our question is, if those things do happen, how does control of Taiwan um, you know, play into that picture? And intuitively, there are some reasons to think that control of Taiwan could matter for uh, the balance of military power in East Asia. Uh, just looking at the map, intuitively, you know, Taiwan does sit at the center of the first island chain. It is, you know, potentially kind of a gateway to uh, the Philippine Sea and the Western Pacific. Uh, it also sits at the edge of the continental shelf where water depths rapidly drop off from the hundreds of meters into the thousands of meters, uh, which is significant for some reasons I'll talk about as we go along. But there are some reasons to think that this real estate, just as a piece of territory, potentially could have outsized importance. And that's really what we're trying to get at in this project. We are not, for example looking at the question at, at other ways that reunification could affect the military balance. So just as a hypothetical, you know, China spends a significant portion of its military budget right now preparing for Taiwan contingencies. It's possible that post-reunification, those parts of the budget could go to other things, and that would have an effect on the military balance. It's also possible that depending on how reunification happens, China could be engaged in a really costly occupation effort or be engaged in a, in a war for reunification that destroys a lot of its military assets. And so the way reunification happens could decrease Chinese military power. And those are, those are all possibilities. We actually set those aside, though, in this project and are really just focused on the, the real estate question. What's the geostrategic value of Taiwan? And this is a question that has, has actually been kind of ignored in the current debate. A lot of the mainstream debate over Taiwan, especially prior to you know, recent events that have brought a little more attention to military issues, 
has been really over Taiwan's political importance, Chinese nationalists rather than military motives in potentially seeking reunification, and the importance of Taiwan for U.S. alliance credibility. If any of you read Foreign Affairs, you know just very recently, Tsai Ing-wen, um, you know, Taiwan's president, published a long essay about the value to the United States of the commitment to Taiwan. And again, that, that value was framed primarily in political and diplomatic terms about the importance of having a relationship with a democratic ally and U.S. credibility and so forth, with really just kind of a passing mention of the military issues. To the extent that the military issues are assessed in thinking about the relationship with Taiwan, um, often they're, they're kind of mentioned and then, and then dismissed. So some advocates of seeking a grand bargain with China, for instance, that would include concessions on Taiwan, largely dismissed China's military value. The most famous of these is, is Charlie Glazer in a piece that he wrote um, I think in 2015, it's been a few years um, you know, since he wrote this. But you know, the basic idea was the U.S. Um, can give over Taiwan to China, cease its commitment in exchange for Chinese promises um, not to engage in you know, further territorial expansion or you know, other behaviors in the region that the United States might not like. And you know, a, a premise here for that bargain to make sense is that Taiwan itself is not militarily valuable and does not change the, the military balance of power. So Charlie has this line in his article, you know, available analyses provide little reason to worry that possession of Taiwan would significantly increase China's ability, um, China's military reach or ability to project power. Although he also notes this is something that should probably be studied more. And so, you know, we kind of take take our cue from that. But I would just note that those those grand bargain propositions really build on this premise that Taiwan does not have military value. Others do assert that Taiwan has military value, but not in a way that is comprehensively and systematically analyzed and usually not from a more objective perspective. It's sometimes talked about um, from the, uh, excuse me, from China's perspective that the island has military value, but again, without kind of assessing whether that's really true or not. So we're all probably familiar with the, the famous MacArthur saying that Taiwan is an unsinkable aircraft carrier and submarine tender, which kind of gets at this idea of Taiwan having military value. And there are studies that point in this direction, but do not actually conduct much of an analysis of what, what the military value of the island will be. And so that's something that we think needs to be done for a couple of reasons. Um, one is, can we get, can we get this to, there we go. Um, we think it actually points to a potential motive that's not often well understood for Chinese efforts at reunification. Usually these are painted as being about Chinese domestic politics and nationalist motives, and those certainly you know, would be in the mix. But if the island has military value, that may also itself be uh, an impetus to seek control of the island. Um, we think it's also relevant to um, we think it's also relevant as an input to U.S. decision making about whether or not to intervene on Taiwan's behalf, especially were there to be a situation in which a Taiwanese provocation actually caused the cross-strait crisis that escalated into a threat to Taiwan's um, independence. So, you know, in that sort of situation, arguments about the importance of loyalty to a democratic ally and, you know, U.S. alliance credibility more broadly would probably be less important and less dispositive than just a clear-eyed assessment of is it or is it not in the U.S. interest for China to have military control of this island? And so we think that that's an input into that sort of decision-making that, that would be relevant. It also relates back to the question of whether those who advocate a grand bargain that would include concessions on Taiwan actually um, can enforce the bargain that they envision. If the transfer um, to China of military control, excuse me, of, of control of the island actually itself alters the balance of power in ways that then make the future bargain unenforceable, 
that that would be something you want to know before uh, committing to that sort of bargain. Um, and then, you know, one other thing, just kind of at the grand strategic level, is if reunification happens and it turns out that that has a significant effect on the balance of power and puts the United States in a more disadvantaged position, then I think it tells you something about what the continued costs of pursuit of current U.S. grand strategy would be post-reunification uh, and, and tells you something about what that set of military balances um, would look like and, and the costs of commitment in the future. And we think there's also potentially um, some important implications for policy and planning today. Um, it affects how you view the stakes of Taiwan's independence, and it also affects how you might prepare if you're the U.S. military, for example, or, you know, the U.S. State Department, frankly, as we'll talk about um, a little bit, as we'll talk about a little bit later on, um, you know, on the diplomatic side, how you plan and contingency plan for a world where this island might actually be in Beijing's control. And so for all of those reasons, we think this is worth looking at. And the, the main argument that we uh, put forward in this project at the broadest level is this is not a good news story for the United States. If China gains control of Taiwan, there will be a uniformly negative effect um, in terms of the military balance for the United States This is and, and its allies and partners in the region. This would be a uniformly negative development, although how negative it would be depends on a lot of different variables and number of choices that the United States and China uh, will make in the future. And we'll try to highlight what some of those are. So the direction of change we think is pretty clear, although the degree of change is something that you know we think depends on, on quite a number of, of variables. Um, the more specific version of the argument that I really want to pursue in, in the section of the talk I'll give in just a minute is that control of Taiwan is important because it would enable China to significantly improve its undersea warfare and open, excuse me, an open ocean um, surveillance capabilities in ways that would disadvantage the United States if it does continue to engage in competition and in potential conflict uh, with China post reunification. So again, if, if that doesn't happen, then who cares about the you know these changes in the military balance? But if it does, um, you know the United States is going to have some some important disadvantages in these areas um, in ways that we think you know could end up being strategically consequential, and it, it would you know be a significant change from the status quo. So I'll elaborate on this a little bit more as we as we go along, but I just want to give you um, kind of one other slide here telling you our analytical approach to, to thinking through this problem. So as I mentioned, we're very focused on the question of, you know, in military terms, in geostrategic terms, why does this real estate matter? And we think it matters because China would have opportunities to base military assets on Taiwan that are currently based on the mainland and that would actually be more effective for particular reasons if they're based on the island. Now, there's lots of different types of assets that China could potentially base on Taiwan, aircraft, missiles, UAVs. You know, all kinds of stuff. I've already mentioned submarines and underwater sensors. For a number of assets that China might base on Taiwan, the implications are relatively straightforward, right? If you're thinking about aircraft or you're thinking about missiles or UAVs or sand batteries, all you really need to do to understand the implications is take whatever the range level is of those assets on the mainland and just scoot it eastward. Um, you know, the width of the Taiwan Strait. It's like a hundred, you know, hundred something mile difference. Mm -hmm. um, and so we don't do, you know, detailed analysis on that because it, it's obvious that, you know, it would be helpful, but it's not necessarily um, a big game changer. We think, however, in the areas, as I'll talk about in a moment, of subs and underwater sensors, that the effects are more complex and potentially more significant than just a range bubble shift. This is not just about 
um, increasing the reach of the assets, but rather that there are certain reasons that deployment of those assets on Taiwan uh, is militarily useful in ways that basing them on the mainland is not. And so I'll, I'll go into that. But the key thing is we start by asking what could China base on Taiwan and which of those assets do you actually need some analysis to understand beyond kind of the, the eastward range bubble shift. How does the deployment of those assets on the island contribute to a potential Chinese ability to perform key military missions? And in particular, we're focused, as I mentioned a moment ago, on the question of what it means for the U.S. ability to operate in the Philippine Sea, which we think would be important for not everything that the U.S. and China might, um, not, not every scenario where the U.S. and China might um, come into conflict or competition post-unification, but a lot of them. If you're thinking about U.S. defense of the SLOCs, if you're thinking about U.S. defense of Japan and, and Korea, um, the relationship with the Philippines, it's important for U.S. Uh, naval task forces to be able to operate in the Philippine Sea. And while they don't have uncontested access to that today, um, it is something that, you know, they're they able to do in large swaths of the Philippine Sea. And so our point would be that, you know, an improved Chinese uh, ability to perform those denial missions with respect to um, the air and the surface of the Philippine Sea, um, you know, could potentially could um, degrade U.S. military capabilities and advantages in some important ways. And so I'm going to talk about this section next. But, um, you know, the big picture is that we think a, a decreased U.S. ability to operate in the Philippine Sea could ultimately have some important strategic consequences um, with respect to other objectives the United States consistently cares about in its pursuit of its grand strategy in East Asia. These include defending allies, the mission of conventional strike, especially uh, against the mainland, protection of the SLOCs, as I mentioned, and also potentially uh, the nuclear balance, because as I'll talk about, um, China also has the potential to base SSBNs off Taiwan's east coast, and I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But that's the basic logic of what we're trying to do. And so what I'd like to do now is, um, you know, zoom in a bit on um, those, those second and third arrows. So let's talk in a little bit more depth about potential Chinese military assets that could be based on Taiwan and what that would mean for China's performance of important military missions, first submarines, and undersea warfare, and then turning to the, the ocean surveillance question. So we think it would be significant that China could base submarines in Taiwan's eastern deepwater ports. Um, currently, China obviously has a growing number of submarines of, of various types. If you read the Chinese military power report last week, you certainly know that. Um, but it's important to recognize that these submarines are currently based inside the first island chain, and they're something close to being kind of trapped inside the first island chain. Um, not not 100% of the time, but they're, they're confined there. Um, China's attack submarines in particular cannot easily exit the first island chain to reach U.S. naval task forces that are operating um, in the Philippine Sea, um, where they have the ability to, to hold at risk targets, you know, on the Chinese mainland and elsewhere. Um, mainly because it's likely that the United States and its allies have strung all kinds of anti-submarine warfare barriers along the islands of the first island chain. And of course, Taiwan is likely to be pretty central um, to, that, to that effort. And the main idea here with these barriers is that you, you know, the United States can use acoustic surveillance barriers kind of all along that, that first red line there. To, to basically detect Chinese submarines if and when they tried to leave the first island chain and therefore significantly confine the search area for U.S. anti-submarine warfare um, forces that are trying to, to find and go after 
um, those, those Chinese submarines. And so it makes the ASW problem for the United States a lot easier than it would be, you know, tracking Chinese submarines just out in the open ocean. And in particular, the first island chain is a really useful place to be trying to use these types of underwater acoustic sensors because of the water depths that I mentioned. So as I mentioned, Taiwan's on the edge of the continental shelf, which uh, means that on the western side, the water's pretty shallow. And on the eastern side, the water gets real deep real fast. And I'll show you another map in a minute that makes clear just how, how big of a change that is. You are listening to an episode of Wednesdays at SSP featuring Dr. Caitlin Talmadge. But the point is, these differential water depths actually enable the United States to use two different types of um, ASW um, uh, barriers, two different types of acoustic sensors. Um, on, you know, on, in the deeper waters, the United States is able to use SOSIS-style barriers. So most people in this room are probably familiar with the Cold War sound surveillance system that the United States used to track Soviet submarines across very long distances in the North Atlantic. This type of barrier basically consists of deep water hydrophones that take advantage of the, um, the deep sound channel in the ocean basin and allow um, the United States in the past and probably today to hear um, adversary submarines at very, very long distances, up, you know, including thousands of miles and provide persistent ability to do so. It's a persistent open ocean um, detection capability and, um, you know, the deep water uh, on, you know, the eastern side of Taiwan, you know, outside uh, the first island chain allows the United States to, to currently do that. Um, and unless and until Chinese submarines get a lot more quiet, uh, that, that detection method is probably going to be pretty useful. But if and when they do, you know, luckily enough, the shallow water um, also provides an opportunity to establish ASW barriers uh, that rely on a different mechanism, that rely on what's called the reliable acoustic path. Uh, these are wrap sensors. And these are different. They're conical, upward-looking you know, sensors um, that can provide only a fleeting detection of a vessel that's going over them. But um, when you string together thousands and thousands of them, you can actually you know, have a pretty good chance of catching an adversary sub as they go across you in that shallow water. So you know, again, if you string these along the first island chain, this is going to give you a pretty good chance of, of detecting the exit, even of relatively quiet subs. Okay, so what's what's the point of all this? The point of all this, as I said at the beginning, is this sort of stuff, because of the geography and the ASW barriers, is doing a relatively good job in the status quo of, of hemming in Chinese subs in the first island chain. This changes, potentially, if China controls Taiwan. Why does this change? Because Taiwan has eastern deepwater ports where China could base its submarines instead. So in essence, control of Taiwan gives China an opportunity to base its submarines outside these ASW barriers, which again, in the status quo, we have reason to believe are, are probably pretty effective. Um, now, you know, this isn't gonna happen overnight. China would have to develop these ports and, you know, that's a conversation that, that we can have. We're not saying that this would happen immediately, but, you know, it does open a door that is kind of slammed in China's face right now in terms of maritime geography. And the reason it matters is that if Chinese subs can go directly into the open ocean, the Philippine Sea, it's gonna be a lot more difficult for the United States to find them. It takes China's geography from the current situation, which is kind of akin to what the Soviet Union faced, where you know their their subs basically had to get out of a choke point to even you know meet the U.S. forces in the North Atlantic, 
to a situation that's a little bit more like what the U.S. has in terms of its maritime geography, which is to say, you know, the U.S. puts its subs in the water on either coast and there's not a hostile landmass for thousands of miles, which makes it really hard for adversaries to know where our subs are. Now, our subs have a lot of other capabilities, too. They're, they're more quiet than China's subs and so forth. But um, the point is, geography matters a lot when you're trying to defeat ASW. And this is better geography than what China has right now. And it would potentially enable Chinese subs to roam much more freely in the Philippine Sea and pose a much greater, more persistent threat to U.S. surface forces operating in the Philippine Sea. We don't think this would be a big threat still to U.S. Um, submarine forces, which are still, you know, really quiet. And there's not there's not big reasons to think that this is a big ASW capability for China. But it is potentially a really good anti-surface opportunity for China. And that could matter um, for carrier operations, for instance, in the Philippine Sea. Um, another dimension of this, of course, is that China might not only base attack submarines in these um, eastern deep water ports, but could also base its SSBN force there. Um, again, this would be a change from the status quo where, you know, uh, if, again, if you read the Chinese military power report last week, one thing it talks about is how China may be moving to a bastion strategy for its kind of next generation of SSBNs, um, you know, within the first island chain. And, you know, I, I think that that bastion idea has some problems. It seems like not a great place to have a bastion. You know, the waters are shallow. They're heavily trafficked. I mean, it, it's kind of the, you know, China's least bad option. So I get why they're doing it. But this is better. This is a better place to base your SSBNs. This is deep water. This is the open ocean. This is, you know, no, no, no enemy choke points that are nearby. <clears throat> so, again, potentially, if China were to do the other things it needs to do, um, to make its SSBN force a robust part of its nuclear deterrent, and we could talk about those, you know, that could be a significant change. <clears throat> so what's the bottom line here? The bottom line is in the status quo, we have a situation where China's subs are, you know, for all intents and purposes, trapped inside the first island chain. There's a lot of obstacles to them even getting outside the first island chain. In a world where China controls Taiwan, China's subs are based outside those barriers and they, they've escaped the first island chain and they can go directly into the Philippine Sea, which is a very likely, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> a very likely area in which U.S. surface forces would be operating in, you know, plausible scenarios for continued U.S.-China competition and conflict. If you think about, you know, where the U.S. would want to be able to operate in order to reassure its remaining allies in the region, it's kind of hard to tell that story without the Philippine Sea. <coughs> okay, so that's military asset number one submarines where we think there would be an outsized impact. <coughs> Excuse me. The second military asset that I want to talk about in a little bit more depth, as I mentioned, is underwater sensors. <clears throat> if China were to control Taiwan, it potentially would have the ability to deploy its own hydrophones, its own passive acoustic sensors utilizing the deep sound channel off of Taiwan, which again, that's something China doesn't have great geography for doing right now because its real estate is all located, you know, within the first island chain where the water is shallow and you don't even have access to that deep sound channel. <clears throat> In a world where China controls Taiwan, it could potentially deploy those passive acoustic sensors off the East Coast. And this can be really useful, not for the purpose the U.S. uses those hydrophones for, which is hunting adversary subs, because as I talked about, U.S. subs are way too quiet to be heard by SOSA-style hydrophones. <clears throat> but, you know, it's really loud, and SOSA-style hydrophones can hear U.S. surface ships. And so China could potentially use these underwater hydrophones deployed off the east coast of Taiwan 
to hear U.S. surface forces at very long distances across the Philippine Sea and really across the, the entire Pacific. Um, why does that matter? Well, potentially it gives China a much improved sensor capability to find U.S. surface forces operating in the Philippine Sea and then two imaging satellites that can you know, further detect, you know, class classify, identify um, those targets and then feed that information to China's anti-ship ballistic missiles. Um, you know, we hear lots of talk about China's carrier killer missiles and how they're building lots of anti-ship missiles, um, which is all well and good. But, you know, they, they have to actually know where to go. They have to have targeting information. And we think that these hydrophones potentially are a better source of targeting information to feed into that kill chain than what China has in the status quo. So in the status quo, the main way that China is detecting at long ranges U.S. surface forces that will be operating in the Philippine Sea is using over-the-horizon radars that are based on the mainland. <coughs> over-the-horizon radar, you know, it's fine. Uh, it's not, not the most reliable, but reliable enough. China can operate it pretty well. The big issue that we foresee with OTH radar is that it's not super survivable for China. What is an OTH radar? It's a giant fixed emitting target with a known location, right? These are not the types of military assets that are super survivable in a high intensity war with the United States, which by definition would be the sort of scenario where, where you know, this would become relevant. Um, you know, China only has one or two of them. Um, you know, they are located relatively far inland. So, you know, um, I, I know, Eric, in the past, when we've talked with you about this work, you've raised some questions about whether they, you know, be damaged versus destroyed. Could the United States get them and so forth? Um, maybe we can talk more about that in, in Q&A. Um, but, you know, our, our take on this is th this is a target. This is a type of target that the United States in a big war probably would make a, you know, expend a big effort to, to get rid of. And if that happens, if the OTH radars are destroyed or they're damaged to the point where, you know, they're, they're not functional, they have to be repaired and, and you have to decide how long that's going to take China to do, then China's anti-ship ballistic missiles are useless. I mean, they don't, they, they have to have targeting cues in order to find, um, you know, U.S. naval surface forces that are operating in the vastness of the Western Pacific. Otherwise, you know, you're just having satellites doing these random searches of extremely large areas. And so the probability that you're actually going to stumble upon, you know, the, the Naval Task Force out there is, is relatively low compared to a world where you have that awkward queuing, either from OTH radar or as we envision in a world where China controls Taiwan from these underwater um, hydrophones, which by the way, we think would be a lot harder for the United States to destroy. Why? Because they're underwater and they would likely be covered by lots of Chinese defensive assets like China could base, um, you know, sand batteries on the island. It could um, also, you know, potentially mine the areas around the hydrophones, which would make it difficult for the U.S. to come in and, you know, cut, you know, cut the hydrophones. And, you know, then it would have the protection of its own defenses while it was repairing them and so forth. And so, you know, we think hydrophones, bottom line, are more survivable than these OTH radars. One of the things that we do in uh, the paper, which you know, we didn't circulate for this talk, but I'm very happy to, to send it to anybody who's interested and somebody who has seen drafts of it, is try to actually do some modeling on this question of, you know, how, how does China's ability to target U.S. service forces at long distances in the Philippine Sea uh, improve when it has hydrophone queuing versus when it does not? And, you know, it, it unsurprisingly increases PRC targeting opportunities quite significantly, depending on your assumptions, three to eight times um, when you have that queuing versus when you're doing random search. Um, and, you know, so that that's that's significant. If you're if you're the, the commander of a, a U.S. carrier that's trying to operate in that region, 
um, to, you know, for example, defend the Ryukyus, which is the hypothetical scenario we look at look at in our modeling. You know, that that that's a big difference in your survivability and your ability to operate. So, what's the bottom line here? The bottom line is currently the United States has the ability to control or at least contest large swaths of the Philippine Sea. Um, obviously, China's capabilities are growing, but you know it's a recurrent finding in a lot of you know major studies of uh, you know Chinese capabilities that they're um, you know they do not have the ability to to find U.S. service forces in the entire Philippine Sea. There are definitely swaths um, where the United States um, you know can conduct carrier operations the way you know it traditionally has. Um, and we think that a world in which those carriers are significantly easier for China to find um, would, would make it really vulnerable to China's arsenal of anti-ship ballistic missiles um, in a way that it probably is not in the status quo if you assume that the United States is going to go after these OTH radars on the mainland. And so, you know, that would be an important change. And I'll just add that this change and the, the changes that would result from basing submarines on the island as well as from potentially basing other assets on the island, could work together synergistically. So, you know, you have hydrophones that are potentially queuing your satellites. They can also be queuing your attack submarines, which are more survivable, um, and queuing aircraft and other assets that would be based on the island. So there's kind of a, a net effect here that we think could be greater than the sum of its parts. So I've tried to lay out kind of this part of the argument. I guess I want to just turn to that last arrow um, and think a little bit here about what some of the broader implications are of, of these claims, um, both at the kind of strategic military level and also at the grand strategic level. So at the strategic level, you know, why does it matter if the U.S., uh, you know, has a harder time operating in the Philippine Sea? Um, we think, you know, it has several implications. Some of them relate to allies. So, you know, as China's air and surface denial envelope expands, that's obviously going to reduce China's costs of attacking or coercing um, U.S. friends in the region. It's going to increase U.S. costs. Um, you know, as I mentioned, the, the modeling that we look at, you know, it's a hypothetical scenario of trying to defend their Ryukus. Um, but, you know, if you talk to the Japanese, that's not like a totally crazy scenario. That's something that, you know, they worry about. And that scenario is a lot harder in a world where China controls Taiwan, which, you know, I think is also why you hear Japan saying more about um, Taiwan lately. Um, secondly, we think that the, the world we're describing is one in which conventional strike on the mainland gets significantly more difficult. Now, again, like, do you, do you care about this mission? Um, you know, I think it, it's been a pretty enduring concept in U.S., um, you know, military thinking for, for decades, and certainly more recently, just with respect to China, that, you know, the United States would like to have the ability to hold at risk targets on the Chinese mainland through conventional force. Um, that gets harder to do in a world where, um, you can't really operate surface vessels or maybe your, your air, your, you know, your aircraft in the Philippine Sea. You're basically left with the undersea domain. And, you know, that's, that's a good area to be dominant in, but it, you know, you're, you're limited given your limited number of attack submarines. Um, we also think that a world where China can base submarines in particular off, um, you know, the, the east coast of Taiwan, is a world in which China can probably um, pose a greater threat to the SLOCs. We looked at this in some detail in a longer version of the paper, and I don't know if we're actually going to end up publishing that part of the analysis. Um, you know, our, our finding was sort of like, well, you know, how much China can threaten the SLOCs depends a lot on how quiet their submarines get and a bunch of other factors. But what really stood out to us was this is something that allies worry about a lot. Like whether it actually happens in wartime or not, and whether the U.S. could adapt and do all the things that we need to do to convoy, and, you know, get alternative routes. Like we, 
spent so much time like, what are all the ways you can reach Japan, reach South Korea, and how far can China's submarines interfere with our convoys, um, which we'll probably never see the light of the light of day. And you can kind of have that debate. But the point is, we think in peacetime, this is something allies are going to be worried about, right? Which to us says that regardless of what happens in wartime, this is going to make peacetime alliance management a lot more challenging because they're going to want a lot more reassurance. And, you know, you have to decide if that's the, the game you want to get into, as I'll talk about in just a moment. But it makes that problem harder. The last thing we'll just note, and this isn't a big focus of our research, somebody probably could, you know, could pick this up and do more with it. But Basing SSBNs on Taiwan, you know, potentially gives China a much more robust uh, sea leg in its nuclear triad. Um, you know, we can talk about this in, in Q&A. I think there's a lot of problems, as I kind of alluded to in some of my criticisms of the potential bastion strategy with China's efforts to really have a robust SSBN force in the status quo. Um, you know, depending on how you assess China's nuclear capabilities today, China being able to base SSBNs uh, in, a, in a much more survivable way off Taiwan, you know, could have an impact on the nuclear balance, which again, how significant you think of that or any of these is depends on, you know, what you value. It also depends on your assessment of a bunch of other choices that the United States and China would both make. And I'm happy to kind of talk through what those might be for each of these. So, you know, these are all areas in which I think Taiwan kind of opens the door whether China actually walks through all of them and whether you care about that kind of depends on, on your point of view. Um, and that, you know, brings me to kind of the, the broader grand strategic implications. So one obvious one that we think kind of jumps out from this has to do with the debate over the grand bargain. Um, we just think that Taiwan does have military value in a way that makes it very hard to make a grand bargain with China that seeds Taiwan if you think there's any possibility in the future that China might actually use that military value to do things that break the terms of the bargain. It makes that bargain a lot harder to enforce because it puts the U.S. in a disadvantaged military position compared to the, the, the day the bargain is signed. The second big implication that you know, we take away from a lot of this is that um, you know, if you want to stay committed to the current U.S. grand strategy in the region, which you know is pretty committed to preventing China from dominating the region, it's certainly you know committed to preventing you know China dominating beyond its region. You know, the costs of the commitment to that strategy are going to grow because it's going to be harder for the U.S. to do all the military things that it wants to do now and keep its military promises to its remaining allies in the region. So, you know, the costs of you know, continuing to pursue the current grand strategy will rise uh, post reunification. And it's not just that in the actual crisis or war that, you know, perhaps someday happens post reunification between the U.S. and China, that the U.S. will have specific military deficits compared to the pre reunification scenario. But it's also, as I said, that anticipation of that sort of world is going to make peacetime alliance politics challenging and again costly you know there's going to be more demands for allies to you know from allies to for the united states to demonstrate that you know it can in fact operate that it will in fact be able to get to the theater um so you know that that's a debate you can have over whether you think that's a good idea or not if you are committed to this grand strategy and you want to be in a position to um you know operate and maintain you know current grand strategy in the region post reunification then, you know, for one thing, it, it emphasizes the importance of not letting Taiwan fall to China, right? And just signaling probably more clearly um, than is done in the status quo, the commitment to Taiwan and the military value that the United States attaches to the island. Um, and secondly, it probably points to the need to prepare now 
um, for paying these higher future costs that I mentioned if deterrence fails. And that's true both at kind of the military level, but also the, the diplomatic and, and political and policy levels too. So, you know, in an operational sense, if you think you're going to still be trying to operate in the Philippine Sea in a world where China's deployed hydrophones, then, you know, you probably want to start thinking about hydrophone spoofing. You probably want to be thinking about how you're going to cut those cables. I mean, you know, we could talk about how you, how you might do that. Um, so there's some operational implications, but also, you know, the broader policy implications are if you're wanting to reassure those allies, are you ready to forward deploy more conventional forces to the region? Are you ready to consider nuclear sharing, which, you know, it's not talked about in polite company, but that's the sort of world that you start getting into um, if this change, set of changes in the military balance, you know, if our assessment of them is correct and reunification doesn't cause a change in what, you know, the U.S. is seeking in terms of its grand strategy. So I'll stop there and I look forward to uh, your questions and your comments. Thank you. You are listening to an episode of Wednesdays with SSP featuring Dr. Caitlin Talmadge. She will now take questions from the audience. the section of the paper that we deleted before this talk, which I worked on, so I'd like to see back in the paper. Um, so can I just make sure I understand the input? You're saying that the air bubble shift is more than a bubble shift because of ASW. Well, it, it relates very closely to ASW, and it's more of a shift in a sense because the ASW, I'm sorry, the air bubble from China bumps up against Taiwan itself. So, you know, it's a restricted, it's not even in distance, it's highly restricted. But yes, the bigger point is that that bubble does, you know, it has enormous implications for the submarine problem. 
I mean, right now, if you can fly those P1s and P8s from behind that barrier, the first line of the chain, uh, you know, the rescue targets coming through the chain, you know, they're picked up by, air, you know, by the sound barriers. You can also, uh, you know, protect task forces. You can do open area searches. There are a lot of assets. The Japanese have specialized in a pretty robust capability they have, but with that Chinese air bubble over Taiwan and extended from Taiwan, they can go Thank you. That's really helpful. Would you like to respond? I mean, no, I mean, I'm going to go home and like paste this section back into the paper and change it. Because we had, I mean, as you know, I think you've read an earlier version, but we, we, we talk about China's ability to base aircraft on Taiwan. Um, but this is a different argument about how it would intersect with the ASW. But the point is you could do an air analysis. Like we originally had an air piece, an undersea piece, and a surveillance piece. We were taking out the air piece because we thought it just didn't, it has some impact, but like not, not as much. And it's a lot of words, but um, I will definitely be using this. Thank you. Okay, so next up, uh, Suzanne Freeman. Grad student Suzanne Freeman. It's not your problem, it's the microphone's problem, but, but uh, we have to adapt. My question is basically, so if China were to hold Taiwan, is it is it really reasonable to think that they're going to base SSBNs there? Like, or, or are Chinese political authorities going to be concerned potentially about other Yeah, so uh, great question. Thanks. I mean, it's nice to actually see you and not just be like exchanging emails with you. Um, you really exist. Um, so, I mean, I think you've pointed out that there are a bunch of other variables that determine whether China walks through these, the, you know, the door of opportunity that's presented by controlling this real estate. And I don't know the answer to your question. I mean, I personally, as someone who you know, I spent a bunch of time studying civil military relations. Like, obviously, I think it's an important variable. And I think that has a lot to do with why China's SSBN force just in general is not as developed as it is, because it's a lot harder to control launch authority on SSBNs than it is with land-based missile forces. Um, so, you know, can we say, yeah, they're definitely going to do it? No, we can't. And I think you're right that, like, the, the political and military situation on Taiwan itself would have a big impact. Like, is China going to be fighting some insurgency on Taiwan? I mean, that's probably going to affect how fast these ports get built. Um, you know, and we, in our paper, we do try to point out some of those um, conditions. And we're trying not to overclaim. But at the same time, you know, in the status quo, they don't even have the option. And so we're trying to say, well, this, you know, this is an option that they, that they don't have, but um, we will, we will definitely outline this in the paper. Thank you. Great. So I wanted to just invite everyone in the Zoom to raise their hand on the Zoom. If you'd like to jump in, we have the technology to make this happen. Um, and I want to encourage you to be part of the discussion. So our next question goes to Phil Hahn. Phil? Phil Hahn of the Naval War College. I really like the hydrophonics piece. And I think it's much more important on the first piece. So my first thing is I had to wait for 20 minutes going like, okay, okay. 
And then I was excited. So I like that one. Um, I'll tell Brendan. Yeah. The, uh, the uniformly negative, well, the antenna went up. I'm like, okay, is this, uni- is this uniformly negative to the U.S. that the Chinese military extends itself to Taiwan? So I started coming up with scenarios. Uh, so one of the challenges I've always had with, with China is how do you actually target on the mainland? So does Chinese military solve that problem? If you put military forces on Taiwan, you, you've actually shortened the strike distance. The other thing I'm thinking of is the, the, that doesn't get brought up is uh, risk of escalation. So how does China view Taiwan? How does the U.S. view Taiwan in terms of the willingness to do conventional strikes and the risk of nuclear escalation. So it does seem to me, I, I, I don't discount those advantages, but it does seem like you find some disadvantage. I mean, Pearl Harbor is the closest analogy, and the U.S. Navy bought a significant short-term disadvantage by putting its forces in the middle of the Pacific. Uh, so I guess, I don't know, pick a, pick a question out of that. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 think, I think you make good points and maybe maybe we should soften the, the language there. I mean, so your point would be that it basically gives the U.S. another set of targets that potentially is closer um, and maybe maybe gives some more rungs on the escalation ladder in a way because, you know, you can, the U.S. could hold at risk targets on Taiwan that maybe it wouldn't on the mainland. Um so that's interesting. That's actually one of the first, I, I, I think that may be the first, um, you know, potential advantage that we've, we've heard in response to this. Um, so we'll have to think about that. I, I think what we were trying to get at with that phrasing, and maybe we should adjust it, is just that we think the direction of change is, is pretty clear, even if that's true. I mean, I think it's probably swamped by all these other things. It's just like, this is not good for the U.S., um, that's kind of our, our, you know, headline finding. But then, you know, to kind of go back to Suzanne's point, um, you know, and I think Eric's point as well, it's like how not good it is really is like hard to pin down because it depends on all these other things, like both at kind of the the military operational level and even like higher level political things about what China is going to do and in what time frame. Um, but I'll definitely go back and look at that language. Maybe that's not the right way to present it. So um, thank you. So uh, I saw Julian and Nick B uh, raise two fingers. Are these both two fingers? Okay, Julian, um, over to you. And then, uh, Graduate student Julian Rippey. I wanted to comment real quick on the, the question of the nuclear balance again. Um, to me, it seems like, okay, yes, the balance is getting worse for the U.S. Unequivocally, I buy that. Uh, in terms of stability, though, it doesn't seem like the worst thing, right? They get a secure deterrent, and they're, you know, they get their trident or their, tri- you know, whatever their triangle. Um, and uh, <laughs> we have a trident. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, Anyway, so thank you for trying. Uh, the trifecta. Anyway. <laughs> and it also eliminates um, some, I would assume, of the issues that you raise in your own uh, un- uh, unintentional escalation. Um, so in general, I don't see that. Like, the nuclear balance gets worse, but stability gets better. 
So maybe there's like a, a more follow-on crises possible, but you know, you're the expert on this. So what do you uh-huh. think in terms of stability? So, I mean, to me, that's a debate about stability, right? It's not really a debate about Taiwan. And in in the longer version of the paper where we tried to, um, I, I guess the slides don't come back, but there was a version of this paper in which we tried to go out and actually further investigate each of um, each of these things, you know, the allied defense mission, the SLOCs, the nuclear balance. I think I'm not, it doesn't matter that much. This, this stuff. We tried to actually like write, write up all of this. And our R&R was basically like, this is all like too much and also not enough because, you know, you're, it makes the article really long and you also haven't answered all these questions. But what we tried to point out on the nuclear piece is exactly what you just said. Like this worsens the nuclear balance, but whether you think that's good or bad totally depends on the question you asked, right? Um, I mean, there's a lot of people having this debate over China right now in general. Like who cares if China builds a thousand warheads because like, isn't that good for stability, right? And if you are kind of a nuclear revolutionist, then yeah, like it's good for stability. You know, everybody has, we're all in mad. We can all go home now. Like the system will be drained of competition, like the end. Um, you know, but if you're concerned about the stability and stability paradox, then like, it's not, it's not so great. And, you know, I think historically the stability and stability paradox has been most concerning when you're trying to do extended deterrence against an ally with, excuse me, against an adversary with, you know, a, a favorable conventional balance of power. Right. And so I think the concern, you know, for people who worry about this problem would be that, yeah, China would have a really, really secure second strike capability. And that would then enable it to like go do things like try to coerce Japan, um, knowing that the U.S. can't, you know, resort to nuclear threats to try to get, you know, to bargain and try to get China to back down. Um, You know, so I think, you know, I think that's that's where that would that would end up mattering. Um, and, you know, the other piece of it that I'll just say is, like, I think how significant the nuclear balance impact is also just depends on, like, what you think the nuclear balance is now. Like, and, you know, how much you think, like, there's just so many, there's so many different interpretations of, like, are the U.S. and China in a deep state of mutual vulnerability already or not? Like, there is not agreement on that question, in my in my opinion. So whether there's a change depends on if you agree on what the baseline is. So yeah, it depends Yes, but they might not need real SSBNs if you think all their land-based mobiles are going to be really survivable. And no, I mean if you're basing yeah. like if you're thinking you're yeah. going to use Taiwan as a base for SSBNs, it better be better SSBNs. Oh yeah, for sure, for <laughs> sure. Yeah, definitely. The other two finger on this, yes, Nick B. Okay, Nick B. Yeah, hi, uh, Kayla. So grad student Nicholas Blanchett. Bill and Eric, so it's the two different respect-related um, questions and thoughts. So first, does your paper consider the effects of Taiwan capture for the effectiveness and viability of the Bastion model, um, specifically, as opposed to sort of using the capture of Taiwan to, to facilitate a shift toward um, more of an open ocean control structure sort of on, on the east side of the island? Um, I sort of ask because it seems, it seems possible that the capture of Taiwan and being able to sort of deploy... Um, various types of assets, whether airborne, um, ASW assets, or kind of various HID capabilities on the island, um, would sort of make SSBNs sort of within the first island chain potentially more survivable, um, especially when in the world of the JL3 and sort of being able to hit the US with literal waters. Anyway, um, and then second, um, this is more, more in terms of Phil's point, I guess, is um, 
you know, whether your model considered uh, potential risks of uh, Chinese justice bans being hit in port, um, being. being hit in port, um, and the sort of relative uh, vulnerability of them being based to, to sort of stand off attack, um, being in Taiwan versus uh, in sort of a bastion closer to the mainland. Sure. So um, it's good to see you, by the way, after like two hours. Um, so answering your questions in a reverse order. So the question about them being hit in port, that's that's a version of Phil's question, right? Isn't it? That like they, not that it's a version, but you know, like it, it's the same, it's the same idea, right? You're saying like if they're they're based closer to where the U.S. could strike them in, in port. Is that what you're saying? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I get that. Um, hopefully, like if they actually had their subs up and running, they wouldn't be hanging out at portals. <laughs> but this, again, this gets back to like, how are they actually, you know, can they build them? And are they actually going to send them out on armed deterrent patrols? Um, on this other question of, um, you know, would they actually be more be more survivable? Like, would they stay with the Bastion strategy? Are you asking, like, would that still be more survivable? Than Basically, for like, IV or, or the variable changes based or have Taiwan and are able to change. Yeah, okay. On the island. What does that mean? The yeah, I think the Bastion strategy is still a loser. Um, and, and here's why. Because their control of Taiwan doesn't help them do ASW against our quiet nuclear attack submarines, right? Like, they're not stringing. They they can string all the, you know, wrap sensors and SOSIS barriers they want, but they don't, those aren't going to hear, um, you know, U.S. nuclear attack submarines. And, you know, in general, China's not making a ton of ASLB investments anyway. So, like, that's an area where, and that's, like, one of the areas of the China military power report that was sort of like, yeah, they're, they're still kind of behind. Um, it doesn't look like they're catching up very much. Um, and what I'm getting at is U.S. attack submarines, I think, can still get into the first island chain and sink Chinese vessels of all kinds, like including SSBNs, especially if they're bottled up in shallow water in really predictable locations. Now, it would, it, it's not a great place to be operating in a tech zone for the same sort of reasons. But my point is, like, I think they're way more vulnerable in, Bast in Bastion, like now and in the future. I, I think that doesn't really change with Taiwan because Taiwan does not give China a leg up on ASW against quiet U.S. nuclear submarines. So I do think, like, if I were, if I were China's leaders and I solved these other problems you talked about, the basing option of having them right next to the open ocean would, to me, seem clearly superior to the to the Bastion um, model. Um, but I don't know. Others others may disagree. Eric has like a I don't believe you with our space. So, Kanal, I have you on the list. Is this your one finger or is this a two finger? You, you only get one question. Grad student Kunal Singh. Uh, so, uh, let me try to defend the Bastion strategy here. <laughs> so. Uh, if, if if the U.S. submarines, even if the U.S. attack submarines are able to get inside the bastion, they'll be they'll be surrounded by a lot of Chinese assets because there'll be a like local superiority of China in that region. Chinese can shoot down any maritime patrol aircrafts very easily. The Chinese can detect U.S. attack submarines not using passive acoustics but active sonar, which will work much better there. So, Easy though. So yeah. The, uh, I think even uh, like after they get Taiwan, they have two options, like open sea patrol and bastions, which is always better than having one option. But bastion in itself is not so bad.
if it is a noisy area, detecting Chinese submarines would also be difficult because the array gains is smaller because of the traffic. And the further complexity because of the Chinese local superiority would be distinguishing between SSBN and other submarines. And if you hit the other submarines, you'll lead to escalation. And, uh, and all the Chinese SSBNs are still intact. Yeah. And the U.S. attack submarines would have revealed their position. U.S. Uh, what's the last part? Reveal their position by attacking. Yeah. Uh, think about that. That's a good point. So maybe maybe frame it as two options instead of one. Like they could still do their current approach, but then they also have. I mean, they also could do both. Like depending on how much yeah. they build. Um, you know, it's interesting from a range perspective. Well, I guess the range, I'd have to think about if there, you know, because one issue is like the JL2 is not, you know, really can't range most of Conus unless it's like outside the first island chain. So maybe you take shorter, I mean, the Soviets kind of did this too with like the Yankees and the Deltas where like some had to go out of Bastion and some didn't. They, you know, they were newer and have longer ranges. So maybe you, maybe you do both. Um, but but this is the fact that Bastion is particularly efficient, right? You have to, you have to dedicate a large number of masks, texting masks. It probably opens up an option better ways than it has in the But it's so net inefficient. I don't know. Quantity has a quality all its own, right? Like, how many are... Uh, depends on how many they build. It's shallow and it's more or less Establishing and Maintaining the bastions or SSBNs in this area. It seems wildly compared to the Soviets, you had you know, they had sanctuary, you had the choke point problem. Mm -hmm. But you had like you had essentially a complete sanctuary up in the woods. Yeah, nobody was up there. Nobody's up there, right? It's a very different problem for the Chinese. I mean, it makes me wonder whether the Chinese will ever actually have to go SSBN. And I think they're the, the strategy we see now is just you know, this is the way I would do it about China. You know, lots of fixed silos, mobiles. You know, make us just ded dedicate all of our assets to this point. Yeah, that's what I think well, the best argument against the nuclear balance pieces is just that, like, this isn't this isn't where the main nuclear competition yeah. is. No, and the fact that they've broken out, at least on the silo front, means that they don't have a lot of confidence in the short term. Definitely. Term ceiling, right? I mean, yeah. um, all right, uh, Jim Walsh. Dr. Jim Walsh. Um... But let's set aside whether sea-based nuclear projected. Yeah. Oh, louder, loud. Let's set aside this last discussion about whether they're actually going to get to a really functional uh, sub-based nuclear deterrent. In your response to Julian, and I share his concerns about strategic stability, you were, and maybe I misread it, a little dismissive there, invoking the revolutionists, and we're all going to go back to mutual assured destruction, albeit. I don't really think that's what the revolutionist argument is. And it's decontextualized. Right now, we don't have mutual assured destruction. We have counterforce. We've announced to the Chinese, we're going to ring them with missiles. And so, and they used to have minimum deterrence. And everyone else is built, and now they're catching up. That sounds like strategic stability. Not, I mean, yes, there's a danger from the instability, stability paradox, but I think, you know, first things first. And strategic stability is like the main thing. But that was not my question. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't have to respond to that. Great, I won't. 
But I just wanted to do the like thing. Again, I love to talk about the clarity and nuance. In that early slide, you're listing the reasons why this is a good thing to look at. And I get that you're struggling with, you know the direction, but you know, don't know the reason. But one of the forces you list in that slide is how we should be concerned about this, which I agree with, is how the Chinese view. When do they view this as a activity that might enter into their calculation of the top one? And so list that sort of then uh, leads to the question, well, what is actually the relative payoff? I mean, is it worth invading Taiwan to get this level of military advantage? That's not your plan. You're not saying that. But if we're going to weigh that in that list before, then we want some relative judgment about whether the positive benefits to PRCC are, you know, negligible, worth it, help at the margin, the justified, that sort of thing. And so at some point, return for investment there for fighting for Taiwan in terms of this military image should probably be specified. May I respond? Was, was, that, was that the question? <laughs> um, so, so great points as always. Um, so, you know, I think in any scenario where China did actually try to pursue reunification, obviously a lot of motives would, you know, there would be a confluence of motives. And I think, you know, by far, you know, I am not the best qualified even in this room to talk about like all of the motives. Um, but one concern that Brendan and I had kind of at the beginning of this project is that the military value motive in the U.S. understanding of this issue, I think, is underplayed. There are some really good books that, you know, by people who are qualified, unlike me, to actually study these questions about Chinese thinking about the value of Taiwan. Alan Walkman wrote a really good book on this. Um, more recently, James Holmes and Toshio Shihara have a book where they look at a lot of you know, Chinese elites thinking about, you know, the value of Taiwan and so forth. But when I hear the issue talked about in the U.S., it's not framed in those terms. And I mean, I was really struck. I'll just repeat it because, I, you know, it is really relevant. Like this essay by Taiwan's president in foreign affairs. I was so surprised. Like the essay was just had only the most glancing mention of like the military value, which you think would be an argument made to the U.S., but also would just in, inform the thinking about like, what is China doing here? Because I worry a little bit that the narrative at the broadest level is, you know, Xi Jinping is just this, this nationalist who's gone nuts and he's going to invade because he, you know, we can't predict him or he's, you know, bad guy. And, you know, I'm sure domestic political motives and, and leadership traits and all that are important, but it's also like there's just a, kind of a geopolitical story here. And the more dismissive you are of that, the more likely you are, I think, to underestimate the potential for conflict to occur. So, um, you know, you're right that um, having a specific you know, the more specific our answer can be, the more we can inform on that question. But I think it ultimately, you know, it still has to be combined with other types of analysis. But yeah, it's a good point. Thank you. Nick, this is your two finger? Please direct it. This is your one finger. Grad student Nick Eckert. I'm a third year with the program. My name's Nick. I grew up in Taiwan and also just spent nine months there uh, during the pandemic. And your point that this is not how Taiwanese policymakers are pitching their relevance, especially when they're involved in sort of track 1.5 dialogue, I think is very well noted and uh, very much reflects the reality of the ground. So my question is, um, what I appreciated most about this, this article was that it highlighted geographic and um, technological elements 
that were not mentioned in analyses by Bill Woolrich, Michael Beckley, and others. So the policy question is, is how do you think that these technologies and geographic factors that you've identified should impact the current U.S. strategy of deterrence towards Taiwan? Should we be doing more to capitalize on these nascent things that we already have, uh, rather than, say, setting for Mach 2s to stop amphibious invasions or other sorts of things? Um, I was referring to the arms deal from last October, just sort of as an example of so, supposed commitments to Taiwan, but so seems to turn more general. I think that you know a lot of your view of that question depends on kind of grand strategy writ large, but I think almost everyone should be in favor of Taiwan being better able to defend itself, um, and I think Taiwan is making more strides in that direction, which is really good. I, I, it sounds like you're familiar with those efforts, but like I think they're overdue and there needs to be more in terms of, you know, like the U.S. can't want Taiwan to be independent more than Taiwan wants to be independent. Like Taiwan, you know, needs more defense spending and it's not just buying stuff, it's buying the right stuff. Um, and, you know, there are some signs that they are, you know, we, we've been talking, you know, people in defense circles have been talking about making Taiwan into a porcupine for like however many years. And you're starting to see some, I think, more movement in that direction instead of trying to build a military that looks like a little America, which is not the appropriate defense concept. Um, so, you know, I think anything that pushes in that direction toward making Taiwan costly and difficult <clears throat> to coerce or attack or conquer um, is good. I will just say that I also, <clears throat> excuse me, I think it's not all a military question. I mean, I think you know, what Taiwan is, you know, what I, what I'm, I most worry about with Taiwan is not like amphibious invasion. What I worry about is coercion. Um, and when you're talking about a coercion campaign, you know, economic, military, you know, some mix of tools, the political will of the target becomes really, really important. You know, that, that, that's a key driver of the outcome, right? Like how, how willing are they to endure costs in order to, to resist? And so, um, I think China's doing a lot of things that probably are stiffening Taiwan's back. I mean, if I were Taiwan and I were looking at what's going on in Hong Kong, I would be interested in increasing my defense funding. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but like, I think, I think that's, that's what the U.S. should be pushing Taiwan to do. Um, and yeah, I mean, we can, we can buy as much, we can keep improving our own capabilities if we have to, but I think, you know, what Taiwan itself does is really, really important. I like to joke, although I'm not joking, that I'm old enough to remember when the Porcupine Strategy was first published. Yes. Yeah, it's been 15 years. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've got two more two fingers on this. I'm going to group them. I just encourage uh, Kelly and Ben to be brief so we can get back. I'll take her offline because time is short. No, I want to hear from you. It's fine. It's fine. Hi, Kelly. Hi. It's so nice to see you on the one finger list. So. Yeah. One finger or two fingers? They're all fingers. Um, <laughs> um, okay, Ben, quick from you and your two fingers. Sure, now I feel bad. Grad student Ben Harris. Uh, my question is that in, you talk about how if the U.S. is committed to this grand strategy, it needs to signal and fortify its commitment clearly now to increase deterrence, and that if deterrence fails, it needs to prepare actively for higher future costs. Um, I'm, my question is the inverse of, of Jim's. If deterrence fails, should the United States be willing to risk war with another nuclear power in order to stop the purity from gaining these advantages? Uh, 
That's a really tough question. <laughs> um, and kind of above my pay grade and above what we're really asking, you know, what we're really getting at in, in this paper. Um, I think it just depends so much on what the specifics of the scenario are. I mean, like, obviously, any U.S. response, yeah, there's some willingness to risk war, but there's certain ways of responding that risk it a lot more, you know, risk escalation, but there's some ways that risk it a lot more than others. Um, you know, so like the day that China lobs some SRBMs on Taiwan, should the United States unleash on the Chinese mainland? Like, no, that's probably not, you know, a great idea. There's definitely people who think we should do that, you know? Uh, window of opportunity, time to go downtown, um, right? But, um, you know, I mean, you're shaking your head because you know that I'm serious. Like, there, there's people who- I know, but it's a terrible argument. There's no basis that's, for That's what I, I was- I, I know. Was, okay, okay, I'm, yes, okay. I'm vigorously okay, not okay, 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 good, good. Um, yeah, so I mean, like, from that perspective, you know, if that's what you mean by risking, you know, war, then no. But I mean, I think if, um, you know, if you want to continue to operate from a position of military advantage and keep pursuing your same grand strategy- then yeah, there's gonna there's gonna be risk involved, and the U.S. is probably gonna accept some of that risk in order to keep Taiwan, um, you know, in friendly hands. So you know, I but you know, it does make me nervous. I mean, like this is this is the um, this is the scenario that worries me most, just about the potential for um, great power war, for nuclear war. Um, you know, and in some ways, like I'm I'm uncomfortable with where some of these conclusions end up. You know, um, because it, it does imply that the question that you just asked, you know, could really come to a U.S. president. Like, yeah, there, there really is something we have to defend here. It's important not only for political reasons, but for military reasons. It's important not only to Taiwan, but to other countries we have longstanding relationships with. We're democratic allies, um, you know, but it does carry some real risk. And again, like I think the China military power report really highlights that there's like some nuclear risk that comes with that because, you know, we are we are getting into a, a state of deeper mutual vulnerability where, you know, um, you know, there, there are some risks there. So I don't have, I don't have a firm answer. Sorry. All right. So we're going to group some questions now. Um, first group will be Eric uh, Lynn Greenberg and then Professor Eric Lynn Greenberg. And John, and then back to you. Uh, so my question is a lot easier than Ben's question. That's the Ben who's working got to see earlier this week. Oh, um, yeah. Hi. So, uh, so my question is really about the, the military value of Taiwan in the eyes of the Chinese, right? So, so part of the story that you tell here is that one of the, the key things that China would gain from maintaining control of Taiwan is the ability to track U.S. naval service combatants, right? Because these undersea sensors are better than over the horizon radars. But are there other ways that China could arguably track and identify vessels, right? So I'm thinking specifically about overhead helium platforms uh, that would allow them to geolocate vessels prosecute in the same way without actually making it. Yeah. Hold that thought. Oh, sorry. Um, John, on the Zoom. Jonathan Caverly of the Naval War College. I have immense respect for Caitlin. I keep on trying to get her to participate in various things at the War College. So I'm going to be very blunt and then um, back up what Eric was saying. I think this paper is generally wrong and, in fact, quite dangerous. Okay, so um, I think in order to make a more convincing case, you have to do what Phil said and this idea that uniformly negative and significant military disadvantage, right? Those need to really be very carefully couched. And I don't think you can, in this paper, you identify the potential military consequences 
of uh, Taiwan going to PRC, and that's great. But this sort of language is dangerous, I would say. Um, and I just want to be very blunt about that. Um, I think Eric and a bunch of other people have just said, I think to really nail the, the military implications, you have to compare what Taiwan does relative to the portfolio of existing Chinese capabilities or future Chinese capabilities. Um, I'll just give a couple examples super quick. Um, I have never heard anyone ever talk about hydrophones as the way that China hat will pursue its ASUW advantage. So I could be wrong. It's a completely original argument, um, but it's, it's not something I've heard of before. So that might be a great thing that your paper contributes, but it also suggests that there's many other things, including a bunch of people on fishing boats with satellite phones that are a lot cheaper and more effective. Um, I wasn't sure from your discussion where you suggested the American sonar arrays are located that would go away if uh, the PRC became uh, 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 became the owners of Taiwan. So that would be something you'd have to say. Maybe it's in the paper. Um, and then again, John is, can you wrap up? You got three more. Last one. Absolute last one. And then again, like the others are saying, it's not just the bastion strategy. It's the whole portfolio of nuclear capability that China has that you have to compare it to and say the SSBNs on the East Coast have a really strong military implication. Thanks. Oh, help me. I thought you said Okay. Sorry, I'm going to go back. Um, okay, so, so uh, I'll just take them in the order that they came in. So, Eric, um, I think your question is absolutely central to assessing uh, kind of what John's getting at, right? Which is like, what is the actual change? And, um, you know, you mentioned like overhead ELAN platforms. John's talking about, you know, guys on fishing boats with satellite phones. Um, we have looked really hard to kind of find the coherent, credible concept of operations that provides open, persistent open ocean surveillance um, and avoids the random satellite search difficulties um, in a way that would make the ASBM kill chain work. And we cannot find it. Like we, there's lots of suggestions like, ah, oh, sensors are going to proliferate. There's going to be sensors everywhere. They're going to be on fishing boats. They're going to be on UAVs. They're going to be on UUVs. They're going to be, you know, um, or there's going to be so many satellites. Satellites are going to be so cheap. There's going to be a million microsatellites. And so you can do random search because you're going to have so many of them. Um, and in the paper, we, we have a section where we try to kind of be fair to those arguments and say like, yeah, you know, if these things happen and you can do that, then you're right. Like the impact of hydrophones as a method of persistent open ocean surveillance, that's going to be a lot less important. Maybe China wouldn't even do it, right? Which is kind of John's point. Um, so we note that, but we just have not been able to find, and I, I if you have read good write-ups on this, we spent a lot of time trying to talk to like technical experts who might read other journals or know, you know, and we just can't. So yeah, it could happen, but it's really hard to pin down what that concept of operations would actually be and how you would get pers the persistent open ocean, long range coverage of almost the entire Philippine Sea, um, which is what we think um, hydrophones could, could provide. Um, <clears throat> so on John's other um, comments, I think you add, I'll just take them kind of in reverse order. So uh John, it's not that U.S. arrays go, I can't really see them, but it's not that U.S. arrays go away. It's just that Chinese submarines don't have to pass over the barriers. So the detection opportunity isn't there. They're just deployed 
outside of where the arrays can be um, strung. Um, on the question of, you know, language, um, you know, we, we definitely welcome like, you know, formulations that are less dangerous if you have some. Um, I mean, I think that, um, you know, our research shows that it would be a, a negative military development, that there are significant military advantages that would accrue to Chinese control of this real estate. We, you know, I think couch those in a, in a careful way. But if there's, you know, other um, language you would recommend we use, we're certainly, um, you know, we're, we're open to that. Um, I'm not totally sure why why it's dangerous because you know I, I think it's it's an answer to a military problem and then what you do with that output you know varies depending on what your other assumptions are. I mean I think there's there's people in the restraint camp who look at this paper and say yeah you know I like this analysis because this tells me that the costs of maintaining current strategy are just really really high and I just don't want to do it um, and they're only going to get higher. Um, and I think there's people who, you know, are big fans of current grand strategy and they, you know, it, it, may, it reinforces their desire to, um, you know, fortify the commitment to Taiwan. But either way, like, I think it's, it's a piece of analysis and kind of what people do with it, you know, depends on their priors and their other their other values. Um, as far as like the, the feasibility of the hydrophone concept. Um, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we, we know that we could hear surface ships in the Cold War using hydrophones at long distances, and we know we could hear subs, which are a lot quieter than um, big noisy carriers. You know, we could identify Soviet subs by whole number um, using SOSIS during, during much of the Cold War. Um, so there's not a good reason that we've heard to think that they can't be used against surface ships, and we've kind of run the traps with, you know, a number of other, um, you know, experts on this. But of course, if there are sources that say that we can't do this, um, you know, we're, we're, we're open to that. Um, of course, you know, hydrophones are not the only impacts that we, that we look at in the paper. Um, you know, there's also the subs piece and, you know, there, there's, um, you know, potentially a revived air section. Thanks to Eric. So, um, so yeah, but, but thanks for your points. We definitely appreciate it. Paper's going to get longer, not shorter, um, which is not what you want sometimes. Um, so three folks left. I'm going to ask uh, each of you to ask your question short. Uh, sharp and sweet, and then Kaylin, you can respond to some or all of you. But I want to make sure you get all the comments. Uh, oh yeah, please, please, yeah. So, uh, in order, uh, Zach Burdett, Sam Leiter, and Wright Smith. So Zach, over to you. Just for time reasons, I'll fill up by email. I, like I think it'll be easier. It's a, a kind of elaboration on Eric's point. Okay. okay. Thanks, um, Sam. Uh, Graduate student Sam Leiter. Sam Leiter, my second year PhD student. Uh, in terms of not answering how bad it will be. Um, I noticed in your grand strategic implications, it's largely about how this is going to be more challenging for the United States in terms of credibility uh, to its allies in terms of preventing China from having leverage over uh, disputes in the region. But you do make a claim that it's clearly caught crossing the threshold for um, the grand strategic bargain not being enforceable. And so I'm wondering why you think it is bad enough to cross that threshold to the point where the United States would not be able to enforce the grand bargain that it might make over time. Right. Graduate student Wright Smith. Something that Daniel Sam was asking, I was wondering if you could elaborate on how this makes allies, like it's Japan and South Korea, more vulnerable to Chinese coercion. Is it that now China can more easily hold their economic trade at risk? Is it that it's easier to target them with ballistic missiles, base new missiles or aircraft on Taiwan that can now? Hit 
So just real quick in the time we have left, thanks a bunch. Um, so Sam, I think you're right. Like, it, you know, it, the more we can specify the magnitude of the change, the more latitude we have to comment on these, these broader issues. And that's why, you know, we try to do things like the modeling to, to say, it's not just that there's a change, but under a reasonable set of assumptions, there's, there's a large change, right? Which makes it a little bit easier. And hopefully this comes through more of a paper than in the presentation to, to actually have a punchline about the grand strategy implications. But you're right. Like, um, how much we can do that depends a lot, just not on the, the how change, how question, but the how much question. So I, I, I don't disagree with you there. Um, right. I think the big issue that concerns allies, I mean, you, you kind of hit on it. One is, yeah, they are, they are concerned about economic coercion and block, you know, blocking their, their um, slocks. But I think, you know, the, in the big picture, it's you're talking about a world where China just pushes out U.S. forces to a greater degree. I mean, it can stiff arm U.S. air and surface forces at longer distances, which then, you know, leaves it free to kind of do whatever it wants. Right. Um, not only, you know, economic coercion, but military coercion, military attack. Um, you know, and I think in peacetime to a lot of people, you know, that sounds kind of nutty, like would China really do stuff like that. But you know, when you talk to people from these countries, like, yeah, these are long-term concerns that they have. They're definitely worried about a world where, um, you know, China has free reign and the U.S. can't ride to the rescue. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think that's what they're concerned about. And Taiwan, you know, Chinese control of Taiwan is not, not good for that, that problem. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Wednesdays at SSP. This is Chris Burns signing off.